and welcome back to another edition of the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Jacob Feldman, and today we've got an awesome guest, Los Angeles Times reporter Christopher Gofford. Christopher has been a reporter for over 20 years, working in Florida before moving back to his hometown of Los Angeles. He's been the bard of Orange County and the reigning king of serialized journalism. He's also a published author, having written a crime novel, Snitch Jacket, as well as a nonfiction book I think a lot of you would like called You Will See Fire, A Search for Justice in Kenya. And most recently, Christopher is the reporter, writer, and voice of an absolutely captivating narrative series, Dirty John. Christopher, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Jacob. It's absolutely our pleasure, Christopher. And you've proven once again with this latest story to be a master of suspense, but I'm going to try my hand here if I can. We'll we'll dig into the details of the Dirty John story, but I wanted to start out with your background. Where does your love for storytelling come from? Well, as far as uh, as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be a writer. I started out uh, reading comic books, DC and Marvel comics, Tales from the Crypt, EC comics, and I think that shaped uh, my imagination. I mm. conceive of stories uh, the way I would comic book panels unfolding from page to page. I think that had a lot to do with um, creating the particular way that I write and. Mm-hmm. I have been submitting short stories to uh, magazines since I was a teenager, um, mostly mostly getting rejected. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, and then I got into journalism because I thought it would be a uh, a rational way to uh, see the world and get a lot of experience on someone else's dime. Yeah, I think that's the reason a lot of us got into it. And did you draw as well? I did draw. In fact, I went to uh, to art school for high school. I went to a uh, a magnet school for uh, for visual arts. Is that something you still do in your spare time? Uh, in my ample spare time, yeah. <laughs> and you ended up at Cornell University, I believe. Is that right? Yes, which doesn't have a journalism program, or didn't while I was there, but they have a terrific uh, daily newspaper called the Cornell Daily Sun, and I was uh, an English major there, yeah. Awesome. That, that's great. And, and I believe after that, you went back and got your journalism career started in California, but much of your formative time was spent in Florida at what is now the Tampa Bay Times, a newspaper that's produced some awesome writers, Michael Cruz, Lane to Gregory, on and on. What brought you there, and what is it about that place that produces such great writers, do you think? Well, I uh, went there in, I think, 98. I was working at the Daily Pilot, which is a little paper in Newport Beach, Costa Mesa, here in California, and I was doing uh, the cops and courts shift and uh, not making enough money to live on, and I needed another job. I came across this series called Angels and Demons by uh, by Tom French, um, which uh, to me is still the uh, the apex of the form uh, of serial serial narratives. And uh, the one that I, uh, that I refer to every time I'm embarking on one of my own. So uh, I thought this is this would be a terrific place to work, and uh, packed up all my stuff in my uh, little green Toyota Tercel and uh, drove across the country to begin working for the uh, the St. Pete Times in Pasco County. I covered uh, cops and then I covered courts, and it was uh, it was fascinating. But there's something about the St. Pete Times that uh, I keep calling it that, and that's not its name anymore. It's stuck in my head because that's that's what it was when I was there. It's the Tampa Bay Times. Um, but there's something about the culture there uh, that encourages risk-taking and innovative ways to tell a story. And uh, a lot of a lot of terrific writers have come out of there. Not just the ones you mentioned, but 
uh, Tom Lake and uh, Rick Bragg, David Finkel, Brady Dennis, um, uh, Kelly Benham. I mean, the list goes on. David Barstow, uh, uh, Joe Becker was there when I was there. There's just a lot of talent that comes out of that place. And there's something about the the DNA of that place that, uh, that encourages, um, that encourages you to, uh, to grow as a writer. So anybody who, anybody who has aspirations of doing this, um, you know, that's a great place to be. Yeah, it absolutely. seems like it. And I think your name belongs in that list that you mentioned as one more great writer they've produced. And one piece from your time there particularly struck me. And I don't think I'm the only one as I believe it was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. It was part of a three-part series called The $40 Lawyer, a character play of sorts about a down-on-his-luck Greek man working his way through the lower ranks of the legal system. And it's just beautifully crafted, I thought. What did that story mean to you? Uh, the $40 Lawyer is one of my favorite stories ever. It's the last uh, story I wrote for the, the St. Pete Times before coming to, L- to the oh. L.A. Times. Oh, wow. And it's basically a year in the life of a rookie public defender in the Hillsborough County public defender's office. Um, I had approached the uh, public defender uh, with this idea that I'd want, I wanted to follow one of her uh, junior lawyers, and she, by, by, by an amazing stroke of fortune, she paired me with uh, this guy, Charlie Demosthenos, who was perfect. He wanted to be a prosecutor originally because he thought that he thought that's where the, uh, the prestige was. Um, and they wouldn't take him. So he went to the PD's office and he wound up, uh, he wound up, uh, fighting for his clients in a way that, uh, began to feel really, really meaningful to him. So we, I got, I got to watch, uh, I got to watch this guy coming of age, um, and maturing in real time. And, uh, I still get notes about that story, and it always makes me happy because it's one of my favorites. Oh, that's great. What What do the notes say? Oh, I get notes from people who say, hey, I'm teaching it to my class in, uh, in a journalism seminar, things like that. And uh, I like that. It's like it's nice to know that uh, it's nice to know that your work still survives, you know. And I know you're a journalism teacher as well. Do you teach that story in your classes? Now, you know, it's funny you should say that. I'm actually very sheepish about assigning my own work. Um, I know, I know a lot of, uh, journalism teachers do, but I, I, uh, uh, I don't do it. And, um, you know, when I, like, I, I'm teaching feature writing now, I taught, uh, I teach at a local community college and sometimes I teach at, uh, the University of California, Irvine. And one thing I try and do is teach different stories, um, every semester. Uh, because it's an excuse for me to read and study a lot of the stuff I might not uh, have otherwise gotten to. Um, last night, I, I, I went over uh, the Stephanie McCrumman story from the, uh, the Washington Post about the, uh, the Muslim doctor in, um, in the small town in Minnesota. And we got... Oh, yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was fascinating to, uh, to, to, to go through it with the students. So part of Part of what's exciting about teaching for me is uh, I get to um, I get to read with a lot of uh, a lot of attention stuff that um, I otherwise uh, might have might have missed or not read quite as carefully. Well, now you've got me curious, and I'm sure some of our readers are as well. So, who is on your syllabus, and and how do you decide what stories belong there? I send notes to my uh, to my writer friends and say, hey. 
Uh, what are your favorite stories? What should I be, what should I be reading? Um, and what should I be uh, teaching students? Let me find, see if I can find my my syllabus here. Um, you know, there's there. I, I try and teach some of the classics, like Frank Sinatra has a cold is on there this time. Um, I try and throw something on there from Eli Saslow if I can, because he's uh, he's he's great. Um, I've got one. Uh, I've got the George Saunders story from the New Yorker about uh, uh, visiting the Trump rallies. Um, there's a there's there there's a ton of stuff on there. I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going. I'm going from memory. Oh, the reckoning by Pamela Koloff. Uh, I try and I try and do uh, one of her stories every semester if I can, because they're always astonishingly good. Um, the writers from the LA Times from uh, from the old days that I really admire, like uh, Barry Barak, um, who was my favorite favorite writer uh, for years when I uh, when I was living in LA. I always read anything uh, by him. Uh, B E A R uh, A K. He left here and went to work for the New York Times. Uh, Barry Siegel, who who runs the literary journalism program at UC Irvine, uh, he's got a number of great teachable stories. So if anybody wants to reach out, I've got my own. We've all got our own list of uh, of favorite stories. You know, Kelly Benham has this astonishing piece on uh, Terry Schiavo um, that. Uh, that to me is a model of good writing. I mean, I could go on and on. Yeah, those are all great choices, and it's fascinating uh, to hear you list them out. So now I'm, I'm wondering what makes a story when a friend sends it to you or when you come across it yourself, what makes it worthy of adding to a syllabus to teach your students Well, about? a lot of it I try and gear toward the realistic expectations of, uh, of, uh, of the class. So Frank Sinatra has a cold while it's a masterpiece, is not necessarily that useful to students who are not going to be going out and mm -hmm. finding famous people and celebrities. Mm -hmm. So I try and I try and steer people toward uh, toward profiles maybe of uh, of ordinary people. You know, Jimmy Breslin's piece on the uh, the guy who dug uh, JFK's grave. Eli Saslow's piece on the um, the pool salesman. Uh, Things like that, things that um, give them a sense that ordinary people uh, are worthy stories if you dig deep enough. Oh, that's that's perfect, and I think that's really interesting that you have your students focus on those everyday stories because both of your last two big features framed on, on the PTA mom who's caught with drugs in her car, though they turn out not to be hers, and Dirty John, the story of a successful interior designer who gets caught up with an dangerous man. They both deal with people that seem familiar to many readers, you know, me included. I want to focus on, on Dirty John now. Uh, it's a story you told in six parts in the Los Angeles Times and also on a podcast that's uh, found a home in iTunes' top 10. How did that story come to your attention and, and what grabbed you about it when you first heard about the details? Yeah, Dirty John uh, came to me through a colleague at the Daily Pilot who broke the story and did some dinging and brought it to my attention. And a prosecutor a few months later, uh, who's a good source of mine, we have lunch uh, maybe once or twice a year. And he said, hey, this is a fascinating case that my office has been looking into. We're not going to file charges. Um and that means that with the closing of the case, a lot of documents will be coming open. 
the uh, coroner's report will come open and a lot of other investigative documents will come open. So that that was when, uh, to my mind, the story really became gettable. And I think it presents a lot of very interesting questions about deception and self-deception and uh, universal themes about uh, love and forgiveness and family and um, how you how you guard yourself against a creature of uh, total malevolence, which is what I think John Meehan was. I mean, he he's a, a character probably scarier than any I've uh, I've ever written about. Wow. And when you began doing your reporting, at what point did you begin to feel, you know, the hair on your neck rising, telling you that this man was beyond what you had seen before in your years covering these types of stories? It, uh, it grows on you, and you realize after a while that uh, nobody who's ever had an encounter with this guy of any duration um, walks away unchanged. Uh, and over and over, people I talked to said, this is the scariest guy I've ever dealt with in my life. In 40 years as a cop, uh, one, one investigator said, this is the most devious, diabolical guy I've ever dealt with. Uh, a lawyer I talked to, uh, John Jallo, said, uh, this is the scariest man I've met in 70 years. So there was something about this guy that um, really, uh, really unnerved people. There was something in his eyes that they saw. They realized that he would, um, that he would stop at nothing to uh, inflict maximum pain on his enemies. And in fact, he, he seemed to live for that. Uh, and that's what's really scary about him. He didn't seem to have anything that we would ordinarily uh, describe as a, as a conscience. Um, although he faked, he faked uh, humanity pretty well. Um, he, wore, he wore a mask very successfully. Um, I'd like to read to you a passage from a, a book that I came across, if you don't mind, that I think gives some insight into this guy's character. Let me, let me find this book just a second. It's called Without Conscience by Robert D. Hare. And in the front, he quotes a book called The Bad Seed by William March. And let me, let me dig it up here just a second. Okay. The Bad Seed by William March. There's a quote. He says, These monsters of real life usually looked and behaved in a more normal manner than their actually normal brothers and sisters. They presented a more convincing picture of virtue than virtue presented of itself. Just as the wax rosebud or the plastic peach seemed more perfect to the eye, more what the mind thought a rosebud or a peach should be, than the imperfect original from which it had been modeled. So to my mind, that was John Meehan. That was Dirty John. This is a sociopath who impersonates a normal human being so successfully that he seems uh, a better, more doting, more dutiful and loving husband than uh, than uh, any normal husband uh, could hope to be. I mean, he's you know. At the same time, there was a very uh, a very ugly side to um, to his treatment of uh, of Deborah in the sense that it was very controlling. He was he was surveilling her. He was hacking into her. Uh, into her bank accounts. He, you know, he installed these cameras. One of the questions I got a lot after the series ran is, who is this woman who appeared in Deborah's house 
drinking Ovaltine and reading the little Bible. Um, and and I that's don't, the beginning of the second chapter, right? Yeah, it's the beginning of the second section, and I, I don't have an answer to that. Um, I had kind of just assumed that she was maybe some drug connection that uh, that he had, maybe somebody that he was giving drugs to or getting drugs from, because he did have a he did have a uh, a pill problem. Um, but one reader sent in a theory, which is actually pretty interesting, which I can't I can't really argue with, which is that he planted her there with the idea that. Uh, it would be a, a pretext for installing security cameras so that he could watch his wife. So one of the, one, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things about uh, the, the reader feedback and the listener feedback is that I'm, I'm learning things about the people involved that I, I hadn't really considered before. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty cool element of the story. You know, feedback uh, sometimes pluses and minuses. But I'm curious, how long did you spend reporting for this story? Well, I mean... Uh, the podcast itself got launched mid-summer, so we only had about three and a half months to do it. But that was based on um, months of reporting before that. So I, I guess the better part of a year I spent on this story. Um, but the last six months, it's pretty much all I've done. I wrote, you know, the podcast scripts had to get in first uh, because the sound technicians have to do their job. So I wrote 50,000 words worth of... Uh, podcast scripts. And then in the last few weeks, um, I used those as a template to write the uh, the newspaper series, which was a... Mm, uh, that's the opposite order that, that I had imagined it. So you actually wrote the podcast scripts before you sat down and wrote what ended up in the newspaper and on online. So how it happened is I wrote a first draft of uh, the story called... It was a one intended as a one-parter called uh, Dirty John's Last Con is, is what I called it. And I turned it in in, uh, in March. And uh, then editor Devon Maharaj said this would be a great candidate for our first really ambitious podcast. Because we'd thought about doing it last year for Framed, but by the time it occurred to us, uh, it was too late because I hadn't gone into it getting audio and so on. So... Um, yeah, so I turned in this draft, and uh, they said, hey, break it up into parts and uh, get as much audio as you can. So, you know, the next uh, few months of my life became an all-consuming effort to get as much. Well, I had to learn how to record. I had to get the right equipment. I I went back to Guitar Center uh, two or three times because I kept getting the wrong uh, recording equipment. I, I I uh, begged everybody I could find for advice, um, and Wondery, the podcast company, brought in a, uh, a producer, a veteran uh, of radio. She's worked for Marketplace and other shows, Karen Lowe, who was very helpful in teaching me um, audio capture techniques and uh, prodding me to get, uh, to get answers to uh, some questions that uh, hadn't occurred to me to ask. So it was... Um, it was a lot of work and uh, harder work than I think I've ever done. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like it. But it does sound like having to do the podcast project improved what you had had in the initial draft and ultimately made it for a better story in the end. I think so, because it forced me to interview people uh, at greater length than I, than I would have otherwise. And because we had five hours of audio uh, to fill, five, you know, it's a five-hour drama over... Uh, spread across uh, six segments. Um, you know, uh, even even people uh, that seemed 
peripheral to the action, I went out and interviewed. And uh, some of them turned out to be central to the structure of the story. Like, uh, like John Jallo, the lawyer that, uh, that Meehan and Deborah uh, approached. Hmm, that, that's great. And I'm curious, initially, what was it like getting Deborah and her family's support for this project and then when it became a podcast? So Deborah had the, uh, had the urge to tell the story with the hope that it would help some other people who were in similar situations. And my, my hope for it is that it's uh, a cautionary tale that uh, will maybe raise some awareness about the issue of uh, coercive control, which is not a uh, not a phrase I think I'd known anything about before I got into this, but it involves it involves uh, one partner manipulating and controlling another, dominating their life in a way that doesn't necessarily involve uh, physical violence. Um, and uh, I'm getting emails from people saying thank you for uh, for telling the story. Please tell Deborah that she's not alone. I went through something very similar. So in that sense, uh, I think it's been uh, it's been a success. And um, if the podcast draws some people to uh, the written series, which uh, in turn draws some people to some of the other journalism on our website and in the newspaper, then uh, I think we've done some good. Absolutely. And I'm curious for you personally, was it did it affect you at all spending so much time reporting and learning about a man like John Meehan? Was I was I affected? I mean, you're trained to keep a you're trained to keep a a professional distance. So I can't say I can't say that um, I was uh, profoundly changed by it, but it it did it did sort of sober me up a little bit in terms of what you can explain uh, about a guy like Meehan. I mean. I kept looking into this guy's past for some some catalyst or some experience that might help explain him, you know, but uh, all you get in the end is uh, his parents divorced, it was ugly, he felt a, uh, a coldness from them, he had a sense of narcissism, good looks and entitlement uh, that became a shortcut for him, but you know, a lot of people, a lot of people go through a family divorce. A lot of people have a, a background like that, and they don't become this guy. So, I think biology and uh, circumstance combined in in some way that I, I can't explain uh, to make this guy. Um, somebody asked if if he went to therapy, would he uh, would he be fixed? Or would he be cured? And I really don't think so because this guy could go to therapy for 10 years and it would just make him a more successful and convincing sociopath, mm. I think. Yeah, after just after reading and listening uh, about him, it does seem hard to imagine. I want to know what was your reaction to the editor when they suggested turning this into a podcast after you had filed that first draft? Oh, I was very excited because I love podcasts. I love This American Life. I've been listening to it for years. I love Invisibilia, Radio Lab. I mean, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. Uh, there's one called uh, Hardcore History with Dan Carlin that I like a lot. But I think uh, I think in making this one, the influence goes goes way way back to the uh, old time radio dramas I listened to as a kid. Um, shows like uh, Suspense and uh, Escape 
And anything, anything with Orson Welles in it, uh, I, I tried to get as a kid. Um, you can get these tapes through the mail or through science fiction conventions, you know, like The Adventures of Harry Lyme and The Shadow. Uh, shows like that um, really, uh, really shaped my imagination as much as comic books did. So what I think Dirty John is, it's a, uh, it's a marriage of long-form narrative journalism and the exhaustive reporting that that requires with the, uh, the propulsiveness uh, of these, uh, these old-school radio dramas that I grew up on. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned the exhaustive reporting of long-form journalism, so I wanted to pick on that specifically. I think one of the many things that stood out to Don and I about Dirty John were the details that you collected and shared throughout. There isn't a ton of high drama in the first few parts, but the suspense and the sense of dread builds as the result of what seem like the smallest details, little things that make people suspicious of John, like the scrubs he wears and the way he looks around the room, eyeing the nicer items. So I'm really curious, where does that attention to detail for you come from? Because you clearly are so focused on those little things. Well, I have in front of me a book from 1973 called The New Journalism by Tom Wolfe. And uh, if you permit me, I will read to you a... uh a paragraph that's uh, very important. Oh, please go um, ahead. Let me see if I could find it here. Uh, yeah, he's talking about the devices that elevate a story. He talks about dialogue. He talks about uh, characters and scenes and uh, the techniques of realism and uh, point of view, um, presenting scenes to the reader through the eyes of a particular character. Uh, he says, giving the reader the feeling of being inside the character's mind and experiencing the emotional reality of the scene uh, as he experiences it. Uh, this is all Tom Wolfe, but here's the paragraph I want to read. This is Tom Wolfe, The New Journalism, 1973. He talks about something he calls status detail, which is huge and which I I suppose I'd always been aware of uh, as I as I do my work, but I became really conscious of doing it and doing it deliberately when I did Framed uh, last year. And you'll see it in everything from the type of tile that's on the roof of this house in Irvine that I'm describing to the, uh, the vanity license plates uh, on the cars that the, uh, the lawyers are driving. Um, if I can describe the kind of suit or the kind of shoes people are wearing, um, all these things contribute to the texture of the scene and uh, uh, build you a sense of the people and the, uh, the larger uh, ecosystem that they inhabit. So here's Tom Wolfe. He says, status detail. This is the recording of everyday gestures, habits, manners, customs, styles of furniture, clothing, decoration, Styles of traveling, eating, keeping house, modes of behaving toward children, servants, superiors, inferiors, peers, plus the various looks, glances, poses, styles of walking, and other symbolic details that might exist within a scene. Symbolic of what? Symbolic generally of people's status life. Uh, using that term in the broad sense of the entire pattern of behavior and possessions through which people express their position in the world or what they think it is or what they hope it to be. The recording of such details is not mere embroidery and prose. It lies as close to the center of the power of realism as any other device in literature. And he goes into Henry James and Balzac mm. and people like that. Wow, that's awesome um, stuff. Thanks for sharing. 
Yeah, that's a that's a hugely important uh, lesson to uh, to keep in mind. I'm very conscious now of looking for these things and not ignoring them because in you know in daily journalism, uh, let's see, I wrote probably 700 stories for the St. Pete Times and another. I'm probably approaching 400 for the LA Times and hundreds more before that for the Daily Pilot. So when you work at a daily paper uh, for that long, you tend to uh, you tend to speed past a lot of these things and you have to unlearn uh, some bad habits that you develop along the way. Um, so I'd, I'd encourage, uh, I'd encourage people who want to do this sort of work, uh, to read short stories and novels, um, as much as possible, because that's the, uh, that's the heart of fiction. For sure. And I want to move now a little bit slightly different to the structure that you've decided on here. I believe the podcast and the written story, they, they open in different ways. And so I'm curious how that divergence came about. Yeah, the podcast starts with the prosecutor, Matt Murphy, reading from an autopsy report. He's detailing the uh, 13 stab wounds um, uh, on a body. And the print series, uh, the written series, begins with uh, Deborah Newell and uh, John Meehan uh, on their first date at, uh, at a restaurant called uh, Houston's um, in Irvine. For some reason, and I don't know why, certain things work in audio that don't work in print. I haven't been able to uh, to figure out exactly why that is, but I tried the uh, I tried the podcast opening in print, and it just did not work. I couldn't figure out a way to do it. I tried it a whole bunch of ways, and it's very hard to know what's going to work until you. Uh, you see it on the screen, and um, and you read it aloud, and you try it out on people. So I wish I, I wish I had a better answer for you. All I can say <laughs> is something right. some things work uh, in in podcast form that don't work in print. And that makes sense. Although I'm now I'm curious, the ending is the same. So is the ending to you kind of more sacred? Are you less willing to experiment with that, or did it just happen that? It worked in both mediums there with the ending that you started with. It just seemed like the appropriate ending. It's, it underscores how successfully this guy was able to wear a mask, even on his wedding day. Uh, he, he, he looked like a happy groom. And uh, the sense of uh, abiding confusion and mayhem that his, uh, his successful impersonation of a normal human being left, the wreckage that that left... That's what I was. That's what I was going for. So that seemed like uh, the appropriate note to end on, um, and it just it just seemed to work for both. Yeah, it's a it's a great ending. It's interesting to hear you describe it that way because for me the ending was particularly telling more for the character of Deborah and the self deception, I guess you could say, that can take place in, in her marriage and, and how hard it was for her to shake what she had been seeing and, and to begin to accept the truth of her relationship. Well, she she did undergo a kind of evolution. So that uh, that scene that I described, where she's watching the wedding, um, happened not long after he died, um, and she's still grappling with a lot of these questions. Um, and uh, eventually, she uh, she came to the conclusion that uh, that he was a psychopath, and it's probably not worth tormenting herself over uh, over the question of. Uh, you know, did he really love me? Because he probably wasn't really capable of it, capable of love in any sense that we would uh, that we would understand it. 
Yeah, what a haunting character. So now that you've done this and uh, hopefully have gotten a little bit uh, of reflection on it a couple days after the final installment dropped, do you think this is the type of project you would undertake again, this multimedia storytelling experiment? Not only that, but I hope it encourages other reporters to try it. I would also tell other reporters uh, the fact that you haven't done this before does not does not need to scare you away. In fact, uh, when when they sat us down with the uh, the podcast uh, network uh, Wondery, um, which is run by Hernan Lopez, who is extremely respectful to me and the newspaper's values uh, the whole time. Um, and responsive to anything uh, we brought to uh, to his attention, um, the you know they brought in a uh, a veteran radio producer uh, Karen, um, and she was ready to write it if I uh, was not willing or able to. So I uh, I took it as a challenge and I said I I will I will write this and uh, uh, if it kills me I will. Um, <laughs> I will write this script. And they said, have you ever written for radio before? Uh, I said, no, but, um, you know, I never wrote a book until I did. Mm. So I, I, I wrote the scripts and then there was talk about, well, who's going to host it? Um, last year when there was a little bit of chatter about doing framed as a podcast, they wanted to bring in an actor. Um, and, uh, and I said, I would like to, I put up my hand. I said, um, people want to hear the writer's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, why bring in an actor? And they were they were receptive to that. So, um, I would I would encourage other people who want to do this uh, uh, to try it. And uh, the worst that could happen is you fail. Right. And and even though it sounds like you know while you might have had to make a few trips for the audio equipment to get that right, that many of the reporting traits that you've developed over the years are. The, or that a journalist might be expected to have, that those do carry over to a large degree even to this new medium. For journalists who are trained, you know, they're trained to get the facts and to get people to talk to them and to assemble a story. You have an, an incredible edge over, uh, over somebody who's coming into it just as a pundit or a talking head. You know, uh, professional fact gatherers um, should not should not ignore the possibilities of this medium. And on top of all that, I bet it invigorated you to some degree. It must be invigorating uh, to be a newbie again in in a new medium to some degree. It does because um, after writing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of stories, you become, uh, your eyes become maybe a little less fresh than they were when you were 25, right? So... It's harder to get excited about certain kinds of stories because you feel like you've written every uh, every permutation of every story. Uh, and this, it's reinvigorated my my love of storytelling in a way because there it's a whole new it's a whole new medium to uh, uh, to attack. And I think of all the stories I've done over my career uh, and how I might have approached them if there were a podcast component to it, like. I did this series on uh, on homelessness on Skid Row. It was called Four Walls and a Bed, where I spent a lot of time down on Skid Row um, dealing with uh, this uh, this county program to house the 50 most vulnerable people on Skid Row. And they had 
They had uh, diseases like cancer and mental illness and drug addiction. Usually the, the most vulnerable had all three of those. And uh, I spent a lot of time down there and I did this series and I, I can only uh, uh, imagine now how much it would have been enriched if I had been able to actually get a microphone and allow people to hear their voices. And that's the case with a lot of stories I'm thinking back on now. So, uh, so yeah, it's very exciting, and I hope, I hope more people do it. Yeah, absolutely, and it seems like people are. The, the other boom that we've seen besides podcasting in the journalism space has been that, that true crime genre. And I'm curious for you, someone who's covered courts and crime for a large part uh, throughout your career, what, what you make of that true crime explosion and whether you think Dirty John belongs in that genre. Well, I have mixed feelings about that label. I don't, I don't mind anybody using it, um, but uh, I'm not totally, totally comfortable with the label because I think it tends to curtail people's expectations. Um, I prefer to think of it as a, uh, as a story about human beings that happens to involve uh, a crime and uh, and a criminal. Um, and I, and I, I mean. True crime can encompass everything from the Executioner's Song and In Cold Blood, right, which are works of high art uh, on the one end, to, um, you know, stuff you find in the bookstore, uh, straight to paperback uh, gore fests, where you open, you open up the book and in the middle are a bunch of extremely gory pictures. Uh, uh, that appeal to the lowest uh, common denominator. Um, so there's there's a there's a lot that can be encompassed by that label, but um, I, I don't I don't know I I I never wanted uh, Dirty John to be seen as a true crime, and for that reason, we were very careful with the soundtrack not to uh, overburden it with. Um, doomsday notes you know the doom and gloom uh hyper hyper dramatic music that you sometimes associate with uh with true crime you know it's like uh you know the grapes of wrath you could call it a road a road trip movie but <laughs> so is so is uh peewee's big adventure you know <laughs> yeah. they otherwise don't have a lot in common <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's very well put well, those are most of my questions about Dirty John, but what else about the story uh, did we not touch on anything else uh, before we let you go? Uh, no, I'm just happy that people are interested, and um, I hope, uh, you know, my my uh, my deepest hope for this is that, uh, A, it raises some awareness about uh, an important issue and gets people uh, some help, maybe, and, uh, and B, that it draws some people to uh, the other journalism that the uh, that the LA Times is doing. Absolutely, that newsroom has put out some some awesome work. So hopefully, it has uh, gotten some more attention through Dirty John. What what's next for you, Christopher? Uh, I've got a few things in the works. Um, you never know what's going to bubble to the surface, though. I'm open. I'm open for tips. If anybody wants to uh, hit me up on email, it's Christopher at LATimes.com. That's awesome. I know. I speak for Don and, and many of our readers when I say we're extremely excited to see what you do next maybe you know now that you've tackled podcasting maybe we'll see you take it to a third dimension maybe it's graphic novels going back to your roots or something uh thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today 
Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate it. It's been uh, nice talking to you. Absolutely. It's been great talking with you as well. Well, that wraps up this edition of the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Thank you guys all for hanging out with us today. For some reason, you haven't read the Dirty John story or checked out the podcast. Uh, They're not too hard to find. Just head to latimes.com or your podcast app of choice. And we'll try to link to a couple other of the stories Christopher mentioned throughout this episode as well. Otherwise, uh, until next time, this has been Jacob Feldman. Enjoy. Enjoy.